0: again to the perimeter church podcast have you ever wondered after getting to church why am i here couldn't you just watch some top-notch nationally known preacher and speaker on tv or the internet that has better production values wouldn't that check the church box and keep you square with the almighty or is there more to it Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled Worship 101, Why Are We Here Today?, which covers Psalm 95, verses 1 through 8. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Now, you may have noticed through the years, if you're around churches a lot, or maybe even if you're not around churches, that preachers and pastors like for people to come to church. Have you ever noticed that, you know? Church leaders want you to come to church. We want you to come to worship. And then once you come to worship and we start preaching, almost all the time we talk about things that you that are happening outside of this room, right? We talk about life out there. We don't talk about what we're doing in here. And there's a very good reason for that, and that is that all of life belongs to Christ. Every square inch of your life Every square inch of my life belongs to Christ. And God's word addresses it all. And so as we preach God's word, as we teach God's word, we talk about all kinds of things. If you stop and think about it, wouldn't it make sense that every few years we might stop and have a sermon about what we're doing right here today about worship, right? About the beauty of worship, the significance of worship, the priority of worship, what it is that we're doing here and how we should go about it and why we should do it. So the title of today's sermon is Worship 101, Why Are We Here Today? Remember your freshman year of college, there was English 101 and Biology 101. Well, today is going to sort of be a lesson. It's going to be a pretty teachy-oriented kind of sermon, uh, sort of about the basics of worship Many years ago, a Christian writer and author and preacher by the name of A.W. Tozer said something that stuck with me for decades now. He said, worship is the missing jewel of the church. I think he may be right. Worship is the missing jewel of the church. And I do think worship gets a little more attention in our day than it did in the day of A.W. Tozer. But I also think that in our day, worship has been hijacked to become entertainment. Worship has been dumbed down Uh, to the lowest common denominator, or worship has been put in some shroud of secrecy and made so uh, unintelligible that no one except someone who's been a Christian all their life would understand what's going on in a worship service. So what in the world is worship? I think, Toes, you're so right. It's the missing jewel of the church. Now, ladies, if you had a diamond, a very expensive diamond, you wouldn't lose it, would you? Men, if you or someone in your family owned a diamond of great worth, of great expense, you would not let it go missing, would you? And neither should we let this jewel of worship go missing from our hearts and our lives. Now, I have a confession to make to you as I start this sermon today, and that is I struggle with worship. I struggle to be the worshiper I should be. Not so much on a personal, private level, but when I come here to this place on Sundays or some other church on Sundays, I very often am not the worshiper I want to be or need to be. And it's not the fault of anybody up on this stage. It's not the fault of the musicians or the preachers or the worship pastors. or Anybody else, it's my fault. I I become lazy. My mind drifts from one place to another. I'm distracted. I watch the drummer too much. All these things, you know. (laughs) All these things get in my way, especially if Kirk is playing. If he's playing, then I really am watching the drummer way too much. But, you know, I, I come here and, and I'm not the worshiper I want to be and I should be. And so I want to tell you right from the beginning I need my sermon today. If we're talking today about what it is we do here and why and how I need my sermon as much as anybody in this room. Now, before we jump into our passage today, by way of introduction, let me give you three reasons for. A, for a sermon on worship. Three reasons. If you're a note taker, I don't even have this part on your points to remember. Find another place to jot it down. But three reasons. The first is this, we are all worshipers. Why sermon on worship? We are all worshipers. In other words, if you're a human being, you're a worshiper. And that is, you worship something or someone. We were made to worship and if we're not worshiping God, we will worship an idol. Every person who lives is a worshiper. This is the way Dr. Tim Keller put it in his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may may not burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Very well said. We are all worshipers of something. Secondly, we need to know this. We are made for the worship of God. We're all worshipers of something because God made us to be worshipers. And we are made, however, to be worshipers of the Lord God. And if we know him through Jesus Christ, what we will do forever is worship him. Think about what we'll do forever. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be enjoying eternal corporate worship. Let me show you a chart about that. Eternal corporate, that is, all together, worship of God. That's what we will do forever and ever and ever and ever. That's why we're made. In heaven will do it perfectly. The question is, how do we get ready for that? And in a sense, we, we get ready for it by what you'll see on the left, through corporate worship and personal worship. As I prepared this message, I tried to think to myself, is my private worship preparation for corporate worship? Or is corporate worship preparation for private worship? I thought, well, probably if I had to choose, I would say that corporate worship is really what it's all about. And my private worship is a warm-up to come here and worship together with you. And what we do here is a warm-up for what we're going to do forever. We're all worshipers of something. We are made to be worshipers of the Lord forever. And a third reason to have a sermon on worship is this. Worship recalibrates our hearts. Worship recalibrates our hearts. Almost every kind of instrument that measures other things sometimes has to be recalibrated. Your heart and my heart are made to measure the things of life, but our hearts have to be recalibrated on a regular basis, and that's what happens when we come to worship. It's a way of setting things right again in our hearts and recalibrating that instrument by which everything in life is to be measured. I love the way Dr. Tom Wood has put it. He has said this, worship is not one activity among other activities in the church, It is the very heart of the believer's existence and of the body life of the church. Worship is not only a duty, it is the highest and most joyful activity of our redemption. Amen. It really is. Many, many years ago, Dr. Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the most influential ministers in American church history, said this, God in seeking his glory seeks the good of his creature. God, in seeking his glory, seeks the good of his creature. In other words, there's no contradiction at all between God calling us to be worshipers of him and calling us to something that is good for us. When we worship, it's good for us. It sets our hearts right once again. So... Everybody's worshiping something. We're made to worship God forever, and worship recalibrates our hearts. Psalm 95 is what we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, turn with me there, please, to Psalm 95. You'll see eight things on the screen today. but you also have an insert called points to remember, and today may be a great day to use that because we're going to cover a lot of material, and that may keep you from getting lost. Psalm 95 calls us to worship. It tells us how to worship. It tells us why to worship. It tells us who it is that we worship. And it tells us not only who the Lord is generally, it tells us who the Lord is for us and to us by faith. Would you stand with me please as we read Psalm 95 verses 1 through 8. Psalm 95, 1 through 8. And I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. Just to give you a heads up, Psalm 95 is a call to worship. In fact, there's a call to worship and a reason for worship. And that reason has to do with who God is and then there's another call to worship and another reason to worship. And that second reason also points us to who God is. So let's follow along, beginning in verse 1. The first call to worship Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Here's the reason. Verse 3 4. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The second call to worship in verse 6, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And here's the reason, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And then he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. You can be seated. Today there are two questions we want to ask of this uh, psalm, two big parts of our sermon. And Here are the questions. The first one is this, what does it mean to worship? And the second one is, what does it mean to worship God? Or if those questions are a little bit too obscure, another way we could put it is this, what does it mean to worship is, how do we worship and what does it mean to worship God points us to why and who do we worship? Okay, so two big questions today. How do we worship? Why and who do we worship? So let's dig in. First of all, how do we worship? What does it mean to worship? And likewise, there will be two points here, okay? So the sermon has two big points and 2 subpoints under each one of those. You tracking with me? Here's the first major point. What does it mean to worship? And the first sub-point is this, worship is joyful celebration, joyful celebration. You know, the last half of the 20th century here in America and during the first part of the 21st century, there have been among many evangelical churches what we might call worship wars, okay? Don't know if you're aware of worship wars, but they've been going on. And basically, worship wars are, in a sense, uh, emotional wars and and wars of control between the somber saints and the happy clappies. Those are the two general groups. (laughs) you got the somber saints and the happy clappies. And the somber saints are those that feel like real worship should be quiet and reverent and serious and subdued. And the happy clappies are sort of like at the other end of the spectrum. No, it needs to be loud and boisterous and joyful and, and just let it all hang out. And, and you know what the Bible teaches? You know what Psalm 95 is going to say to us? It's actually both. It is both. And it's important for us to embrace both. Now, you may or may not know this if you're new around Perimeter, but Perimeter is a church of the Presbyterian heritage. And Presbyterians are often called the frozen chosen. Do you know that? (laughs) The frozen chosen. And so guess which one of these two that we need the most? We probably need a bigger dose of learning to be a little more happy and clappy, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Someone not from a Presbyterian background is really <laughs> all excited about that point. Let it be recorded there was actually a day today at, at Perimeter Church. We're, we're getting there little by little. You know, we, we, we need both of these things, all right? But probably what I struggle with the most, honestly, is this idea of joyful celebration. Let's see where we we see this in Psalm 95, okay? Verses 1 and 2. He says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Now, you know, wouldn't it freak some of us out if somebody shouted out loud, right? Think about this worship of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Can't you just, as you see this description, sort of think of the emotion of their worship? In Psalm 150, it describes the worship of the people of the Old Testament. They had trumpets, stringed instruments, tambourines, cymbals, loud and clashing cymbals. I think it was loud and boisterous. I, in fact, think that a lot of us who are Americans of northern European descent would have felt very uncomfortable in the temple of the Old Testament. It would have been a little bit out there for us. Stop and think about it for a moment. If, if you're from a descent of people from Northern Europe like my family is, especially British or German or Scandinavian or those kind of groups, we have a pretty small bandwidth of emotions that we show, right? You know, Pretty darn small. Hard to, hard to tell any difference between we're, when we're happy and sad. You know, Anger, that's okay. That's a good one. But, you know, but all the other ones we're not so, so sure about. Now, if you're from Greek or Italian descent, the, the emotional bandwidth gets a, gets a little wider, right? If you're from African descent or Hispanic descent, maybe the emotional bandwidth gets even wider. If you're of Asian descent, it seems to me that some nations, Asian nations have very controlled and some are very emotive. But you know what? A group of people from all over the earth are perhaps the most emotive are people from the Middle East, right? Middle Easterners have strong emotion in any and every direction and god chose middle easterners he chose Jews to be his people so can't you just imagine how fervent their worship was in the old testament well if you're english british german background like me i mean i wouldn't have any emotion at all if there weren't some scotch people in my heritage you know the, the scotch sort of bring a little bit of emotion into the picture. We probably need to loosen up a little bit, don't we? Jesus said, I've come that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full. May our worship be joyful celebration. May our face get the, get the message. May our hands get the message. May our bodies get the message and worship with joy. So first, worship is joyful celebration. Second thing that worship is, worship is humble submission. Worship is humble submission. Where do we see that in Psalm 95? Look at verses 6 through 8, please. It says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we're the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come and kneel before him. Now, I have to admit, when I heard that we were building a chapel and I saw what it was going to be like, I sort of hoped, hoped that we would have kneelers in the chapel. I didn't grow up Episcopalian, but boy, when I've gone to some Episcopalian churches, it's pretty darn cool to have a kneeler right there where you are, and you can go from sitting to kneeling, and a whole congregation is kneeling in the presence of the Lord. Well, we might not, may not physically kneel here together. But what the psalmist is saying is have an attitude of your heart of kneeling and submitting to the Lord. That's what worship is all about. Webster's Dictionary from long, long ago, one of the earlier versions of it, defined worship this way. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I like that. Worship is to honor something or someone with extravagant love. There's the joy. And with extreme submission. You know what ought to happen in almost every worship service that you and I attend? Somewhere during the worship service. Maybe it's during one of the songs. Maybe it's during the sermon. Maybe it's during a prayer time or confession time. But all of us almost every week should have the experience of feeling this in our hearts. Okay, Lord, you win. Okay, Lord, I give up. You're in charge. I'll choose your way and not way and not my way. I submit. And it's so good for us when we do. When you and I do that, when you and I will embrace that attitude of heart, it is good for us. And every week in worship, that is something that we should experience. What are the points of the service in which we can embrace this idea of humble Submission. It could be during the confession of prayer. It could be during any and all prayers of the service. There are certain songs that talk about our submission to the Lord. And as we sing, even if we sing joyfully, it should lead us to an attitude of submission. It could be during the reading of scriptures or after the reading of scripture. It could be during the preaching of God's word or after the preaching of God's word. I always end my sermons with a prayer. And you know why? It is inconceivable to me to think about coming out of a sermon without praying because a sermon calls for a response. I should in some way after hearing God's word preached have a way of responding to God to say, God, I believe this or I don't, I submit to this or I don't, I'm following this or I don't, I thank you for this or I don't. But every part of the service, but especially maybe at that time, there needs to be a way of saying, Lord, I want to submit. Joyful celebration, humble submission. Now this psalm changes the tone right in the middle of things. Right here where he talks about submitting to the Lord and knowing, remembering that the Lord is our Redeemer, things change a little bit. In verses 7 and 8, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I just talked about hearing that still, small voice of the Lord. And what you might do is harden your heart when you hear it, right? Instead of submitting, you might push away and pull away. This psalm changes its tone and its tenor. In fact, some biblical scholars that don't believe in the truthfulness of the Bible, in fact, have said this psalm is obviously written by two different people. There's one part that has a call to worship and a reason for worship and a call to worship and a reason for worship and then everything changes. No, I think the same writer wrote all of it, but I think by the direction of the Holy Spirit, he came to this part about being submissive to the Lord and, and, and being subject to his authority and he thought to himself, the enemy of that is hardness of heart. And he says, if you're hearing God speak to you, don't harden your heart. And he recalls an episode from Israel's experience that all of these people hearing the psalm would have known about. And it was a time in Israel's history when they hardened their heart against the Lord and would not submit and would not obey and would not trust and would not follow. And there were dire consequences. And so he says here, don't harden your heart. Here's the reason I think he brings this up. Hardness of heart is the enemy of worship. And hardness of heart is the enemy of joy. Are you lacking joy in your life? Is worship dead to you? It may be hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is the enemy of our worship. And hardness of heart is the enemy of our joy. Matthew Henry, a preacher from several centuries ago, put it this way. He said, hardness of heart is at the bottom of all of our distrust of God and of our quarrels with him. What a powerful observation. I know what it's like to have a hardened heart. The time that I was leaving to move to Chicago for seminary, I was mad at God. I was very deeply disappointed with God. I was quarreling with God. I felt that he had failed to give me something that I'd wanted, and in his failure, I was ticked off and I was mad at him. And I headed off to seminary to become a preacher, mad at God. So I arrived there and God directed me to the book of Hebrews. And that book of Hebrews brought me back by pointing me to Jesus over and over and over again. And God brought me back to having a submissive heart. But I know what it's like to have a quarreling attitude with the Lord let me ask you today, are you here quarreling with God about something? Are you distrusting him? Is this idea of submission before him something that smells terrible to you? And what do we do about that? Here's what we do. We go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to the fact that God loved you so much that he would not withhold even his own son. But he who loved us so much to give us, he would get to give us even his son, will he not also with him give us freely all things that we need? In my own experience, that thing that I thought that God had held back from me, the fact that he did not give that to me became the pathway to one of the greatest blessings of my life. And instead of being mad at God, I should have been trusting him. Instead of having a hardened heart, I should have sought to keep a soft heart by trusting the Lord. You know, years ago, I remember someone showing me a Bible that had been given to them. If I remember, it was given to them by their grandfather. And their grandfather, had written in the front of the book, a little saying that maybe you've heard, It said, "This book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book." When in a like manner, I would say to you today that hardness of heart will keep you from worship and joyful worship will keep you away from a hardened heart. Christ-centered worship, gospel-centered worship, grace-centered worship, it will melt your heart. If you really look at what Jesus has done for you and who you are without him, you can't help but worship. One last observation before we talk about who it is that we worship, and it's this. When we talk about how to worship and how how do we go about it, the Christians of the first century organized their worship much like worship had been done in the synagogues. And there were three parts of worship in the synagogue. And you'll see them here on the screen. There was praise, prayer, and instruction. Praise, prayer, and instruction. And it could be by singing or it could be by speaking. And I hope you understand that's true of our worship as well. Sometimes we speak praises and sometimes we sing praises. Sometimes we speak prayers and sometimes we sing prayers. Usually our instruction is spoken, but sometimes we sing instruction to one another. And here's my point here. You're never to be passive in worship. If we're speaking, speak from your heart. If we're reading, read from your heart, whether it's praise or prayer or instruction. If you're singing, sing from the heart. And that singing may be praise, that singing may be prayer, that singing may be instruction. And even if somebody up here is singing and saying something, and you're silent. You're not to be passive. Even if you're silent and you are to be active. How? By hearing and affirming in your heart. How is it that we become active worshipers? It's by keeping our thoughts active. It's by keeping our hearts active. It's by responding to what we hear from other people. And in our hearts, we are saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Now there's a whole spectrum of how people respond, right? How do you affirm? On one end of the spectrum, Pentecostals shout. Baptists say amen. Evangelical Methodists nod vigorously and and poke their spouse. And Presbyterians look stern, take notes, and thank God it was predestined. You know, everybody's... Everybody's somewhere on the spectrum, okay? But even if you interact with what's going on up here by thinking about it carefully and writing something down. Do something. My younger daughter for a while was taking a girl that had grown up in a Hindu family to some of the youth group events here in Atlanta when she was in high school. And the girl went with her to some events, including some times where Christians prayed together. And after the first time she had been with a group of Christians praying, she asked my daughter Callie, why do Christians moo when they pray? She said, moo when they pray? What do you mean? She said, well, one person prays out loud and everybody else goes, mmm. The girl was serious too. She was, I don't know if you want to moo or if you want to shout or if you just want to write things down vigorously and think about it. But in some way, if things are sung and said, affirm them somehow in your heart, okay? And if we're speaking together, if we're singing together, do it from the heart. Worship is joyful celebration. Worship is humble submission. Reverence and exultation. Enthusiasm and reflection is both. Now, very quickly here today, let's talk about why and who we worship. Why do we worship and who do we worship? And again, in Psalm 95, there are two parts of this. First of all, we worship because God is the creator. He he is the creator. Look at verses three through five. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his for he made it and he formed the dry land. Do you notice the contrast here? The depths of the earth and the mountain peaks, the dry land and the oceans. This is the Hebraic way of saying he's got the whole world in his hands. Everything belongs to him. High and low, dry and wet, it's all his. He made it. One of the great things about summertime is we get to go on vacations. And sometimes with those vacations, we get to see the beach or we get to see mountains. And for me personally, seeing mountains pulls me to worship, and seeing the beach pulls me to worship. In fact, it's really impossible for me to be on a beach early in the morning or late at night and not have a heart that's drawn to worship. Why? Because it talks about how great he is as the creator, it shows us that. We worship because he is God the creator. Secondly, we worship here because he is God the redeemer. God the redeemer. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. And you may not appreciate him as creator until you come to know him as your redeemer. That's the way in. Three phrases that are used in this psalm here that show us that God is our redeemer. In verse one, God is called the rock of our salvation. Let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. At that period of time, if you're in battle, if you could be up on a a large rock, it was your salvation. It was your defense. The Lord is the rock of our salvation. Secondly, in verse 6, he is our maker. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And here it doesn't mean creator. It means that he made Israel. Just like Jesus said, I will build my church. God was the one that built Israel. He made them as a people. And thirdly, he's our shepherd. In verse 7, it says, we're the people of his passion, the flock under his care. Our rock of, the rock of our salvation, our maker, our shepherd, all this says he is our redeemer and our savior. Now think about this. Jesus is the one who said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm the one making the New Testament church. And Jesus is called the cornerstone, the rock of our salvation. All of this points to Jesus. All of this points to Jesus. The way into the room of worship is through Jesus. The way to be brought to be a worshiper of the Lord is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we started the service here today, Zachary quoted Romans 12. What a great verse to quote. I urge you therefore, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is what? Your reasonable act of worship. And why do we do that? Because of the mercies of God that come to us through Jesus Christ. Our Savior came to be one of us for us. He died on a bloody cross for us. He was raised from the dead for us. And all of that comes to us by the mercy of God. And so the Lord says here, because of his mercies, worship him. Robert Weber has said, worship is a rehearsal of the saving deeds of God in history. And God's, action, God's saving actions culminate in the work of Christ. Amen and amen. All right. There's what we see in Psalm 95. What is worship? It's joyful celebration. It's humble submission. Why do we worship? Because God is the Creator, and because He is our Redeemer, and that's what pulls us in. And that that work of His being our Redeemer is in its zenith. It is best seen in and through the work of Jesus Christ. It centers on Him. Now, before we leave, very quickly. Four takeaways, four takeaways. And they are these very, very, very quickly. Number one, work hard in worship. Work hard in worship. You know, I don't know if you know this about the worship service here, but those of us on stage, we can see you just like you can see us. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> it's not like watching TV or a movie, you know. And so all of us up here are aware that some of you are very engaged in worship. We can see it. Whether it's singing or preaching or reading or, or say, reading thing whatever, you're engaged, we can tell. And others of you look like you're sort of looking at the 11 o'clock news. You know, there's not a lot of energy out there. So here's, here's my exhortation. Work hard in worship. If we're singing something, sing it from the bottom of your heart. If we're reading something, read it with meaning. If you're hearing God's word read, hear it and in your heart Affirm and submit. And in the preaching of God's word, however well or poorly it's preached, it is God's word coming to you. Hear it, receive it, affirm it, and submit. Work hard in worship. Number two, remember worship is not about me. It's not about me. May there never be a self seeking of an experience just for an experience. May there never be an arrival here looking for knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. If we're seeking instruction, it's so that we can worship. If we're seeking an emotion, it's simply an emotion in response of who God is. Like the way John Piper's put it, he says, the essence of authentic corporate worship is the collective experience of heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God, or a trembling that we don't have it and a great longing for it. Worship is for the sake of magnifying God, not ourselves. And God is magnified in us when we are satisfied in him. Work hard in worship. It's not about me. Number three, I need God's people. You and I need God's people. We need each other. In the Old Testament, temple worship together was, in fact, a restorative gift of God to help the brokenness of the Israelites. And you and I together are the restorative gift of God. Coming here to worship together is a restorative gift of God to help address the brokenness of our lives. We need each other to worship God well. And then lastly is this, remember, I need Jesus for my failures as a worshiper. I need Jesus for my failures as a worshiper. Here's the truth of the matter. I have worshipped the idols of this world. I have worshipped power and achievement and prestige and accomplishment and comfort And because my heart is so often pulled away to those idols, I need Jesus to forgive me for those failures and I need Jesus to change me. I need Jesus to change me and forgive me for my failures as a private personal worshiper, for my inconsistency, for my lack of of fervency. I need God to forgive me for my failures as a worshiper here on Sunday mornings, for how I don't come prepared, for how I don't do what I've told you to do. And I need God's forgiveness for that and I need God to keep changing me in the right direction. Let me end this message with a promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is this. Someday Jesus will come back and he will create the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what will happen at that time? You and I, if we belong to the Lord, we will become perfect worshipers. What a great thing to think about perfect worshipers forever and ever and ever. And if that is my destiny of what I'm going toward, then I want to seek Jesus today to keep changing me in that direction. If that's what I'm going toward, I want to keep practicing every day alone. And if that's where I'm going, then I want to keep practicing together with you every week together. Worship Is at the heart of what it's all about, and it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then let's worship a little more. Lord Jesus, we do thank you and praise you that you have made us to worship you. We ask you to forgive us for the idols of our hearts. We ask you to forgive us for all those times that we worship other things rather than you. We not only ask you to forgive us for that, Lord, we ask you to change us. Bring us to honor you genuinely from our hearts every day. Lord, make us people who are disciplined and faithful to worship you daily alone. That we would open the scriptures. That we would kneel before you or bow in your presence. And we would seek you through your word. And we would submit to what we see. And we would rejoice in you and praise you. And Lord, lead us to be people who consistently love to come together with the people of God and worship together now. Lord, I thank you that one day with all of your people, from every tribe and tongue and nation, throughout the centuries, we will worship you perfectly forever. So Lord, lead us to do it now. Lead us to do it today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.